The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number four, Red Sonja, part one. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode, I'll be joined by Classic Comics Forum moderator and author of the complete Savage Sword of Conan review thread, Roquefort Raider, to discuss Red Sonja. Created in 1972 by writer Roy Thomas and artist Barry Windsor Smith, Red Sonja quickly became one of the most popular characters in fantasy comics. But Red Sonja never truly reached her full potential, as a series of creative missteps derailed the character right at the height of her popularity. Today, Roquefort Raider and I will take a look at the character's history, examining each of Red Sonja's different series at Marvel and her various appearances in Conan the Barbarian and Savage Sword of Conan, to discuss why the character became popular in the first place, how the powers that be at Marvel managed to ruin their own character, and what went wrong with each attempt to give the character her own solo title. But before discussing Red Sonja, I sat down with Roquefort Raider to discuss how being introduced to both both European and American comics in Quebec shaped his views as a comic book fan. So I hope you enjoy the first part of our two-part discussion of Red Sonja. Thanks once again, Roquefort, for joining me here on the podcast. Now, as you and our listeners know, Every time I have a guest on the show, I start off with a little questionnaire about their experiences as a comic book fan and collector, so that when we get into the topic, which today will be Red Sonja, our listeners have some idea of where you're coming from and how your reading experiences have informed your opinion on the subject. So with that in mind, we'll start right at the beginning with a simple question. What was the first comic that you read? The very first one or the first American comic that I can remember? Because the, the first comic I read was a very, very, very long time ago. It might either have been one of the Tintin series or the Tarzan Sunday newspaper uh, strip. And what was the first American comic you read? It was an issue of Spider-Man, and it had, let me see, it was a black and white one, so it was translated, and it had the lizard, I believe, in it. It was drawn by Jim, uh, I think it was John Romita and Jim Mooney. Fairly vague. I was, I was like four at the time. It made a big impression. I was a big superhero fan in those days. Watching the Marvel animated cartoons on the, in the afternoon on TV it was a revelation. So other than comics you may have reviewed for the purposes of our discussion today, what was the last comic that you read? Uh, well, following your recent podcast, I've been rereading Life with Archie. And uh, unlike what I did the first time, which was reading the whole thing in, in sequence, this time I'm reading just the Archie Mary's Veronica strip first, and then going back to the Archie Mary's Betty. I think it reads much better that way. I think it does too. And I, when I first started reading it in the collected form... I was really aggravated that they, even in the collected version, they still have it split. Yeah. Uh, and I eventually realized that they were doing that because when you get to the, the crossover, crossover. Yeah, uh, exactly. it has to be that in that format, but it reads much better if you just it, it, follow it, it the story. Form. Yeah, it, it does. And I, I think that it, it must have been easier to write as well because uh, the writers were saying that the uh, they would get confused at times. 
who is in which universe, who knows whom. And uh, see, uh, after the podcast, I, I was wondering about why Miss Grundy had caught cancer in one universe and not the other, because I can't see how Archie's marriage would have any influence on her state of health. And it turns out that in Archie Marries Veronica, you don't see her at all. Neither her nor Mr. Weatherby are featured. The first time you see, you see Weatherby in the Archie Marries Veronica uh, universe, I think, is when Kevin gets married, because he's there in the, in the crowd. But the, I was under the misapprehension that Miss Grundy had, had been around and had survived in the uh, A plus M universe. Uh, so if you'd had just one story or run or series or something to take with you on a desert island to read, what would it be? <laughs> well, I think that my undying affection for Savage Sword of Conan is no mystery. I'm not sure I would take it to a desert island, though, because I've read it so often that mm, it, it wouldn't be as, as new. I, but yeah, I know what I would bring with me. I, I'd bring the Usagi Yojimbo series, which, thanks to Shakespeare, I'm currently reading, and my God, it's brilliant. Yeah, I got into it uh, thanks to Shakespeare as well, and I put the whole run together two years ago maybe, uh -huh. and sort of read it all at once. And Shakespeare's yeah. a good influence. It, it was great. It, uh, it was fantastic. And that's also what Shakespeare is taking on his Desert Island. So maybe the two of you are together and you can just share. Uh, so what creator do you think is underrated? Oh, that's a fairly difficult one. I mean, uh, th there are great creators that are underrated because they're not really well known but to be underrated you, you must be recognized to some extent and not be recognized enough if you will so who is underrated i don't know do you do you have an, an opinion on the matter well you know as a huge fan of crime buster and boy comics i think the writer charles byro is really underrated because most people today have never heard of him. But I yeah. think his writing was, especially for the time period he was working in, was, is really good. Uh -huh. And similarly, the artist that did a lot of those stories, Norman Maurer, is a guy who most people haven't heard of. But he, he, had, he was very uh, skilled, like very technical for the time period. You know, a lot of the Golden Age art is pretty loosey-goosey. But his, his stuff is, is really well-crafted. Okay. No, I, I'd be hard-pressed to find an artist that I think is, is truly underrated. Most of them are not, do not get the recognition they should get, but as soon as people see their work, they go, oh, wow, this is beautiful. Well, uh, let, me, let me go to the next one. Maybe this will be easier. What creator yeah. do you think is overrated? Oh, my God, Grant Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> Without any question. Not, not because he's not good, but when you hear his fans talk, it's like he's the second coming or something, and... The Grant Morrison stories I've read were either buff, ordinary, or they were pretentious pap, and I, I never, really never got into him. I remember reading the Arkham Asylum graphic novel painted by Dave McKean, and it was a beautiful thing to look at, and it was coming right on the step of things like The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, and it was the, the coming of the era of the great, serious superhero graphic novels. And Arkham Asylum was just a massive disappointment. Apart from the joke with, with the Joker and the April's Fool gag that he plays on Batman at the beginning, the rest was just an exercise in dropping names, dropping literary references, and it, it felt sophomoric. Oh, I hated that. So I thought, well, perhaps it's a dud. And then Morrison had this Hellblazer two-parted, which was once again just all appearance and no substance. It was very... Oof, 
very, very disappointed, a flaky plot, nothing to it. And then it was several years before I, I could read anything else of his, and I got persuaded to try his JLA run, and I read something called Rock of Ages. And once again, it was very derivative, it, things made no sense. Ugh. So I never got around to read the supposedly very, very good stuff like We Three and uh, others. I just couldn't bother with it. I, di I did sort of enjoy his X-Men run. It was all right. Mostly retreat of Claremont plots, but at least he was trying something different. The new look and the, uh, the emphasis on the school. But yeah, overrated, Grant Morrison. So what? Well, I think I know the answer to this already, but what character do you love? In all of Comicdom? Yeah. Cyclops. Oh, I thought you were going to go with Conan. I'm a big but... Cyclops fan. <laughs> well, and I know that's a controversial thing to say these days because Marvel's turned Cyclops into like the second coming of Satan. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually a big Cyclops fan too. He was my favorite member of the X-Men back when I was reading it uh, for the uh -huh. very... Actually, I'm have to rewind on that. By the time I started reading X-Men, he wasn't on the team. Okay. But when I got the back issues... Uh, he quickly became my favorite my favorite character in the series. Uh, so I was a little disappointed that my first issue was 195. It was just before X Factor started. And yeah. so I missed like all the good stuff. I read, had to read it in back issues. And I'm a big fan of Cyclops. I think the, I think honestly X Factor, the, the first issue of X Factor pretty much kind of ruined Destroyed. the character. Yeah, it destroyed him as a character. The, the whole X-Factor experiment was an exercise in character assassination. Yeah, and it's too bad, because I, I believe that arguably Cyclops was the main character in X-Men when it was founded. He was the guy you could relate to. Uh, he was the guy who was uh, chasing the girl. He was, he was the equivalent of Peter Parker a little. But you know, you know what I like the most about Cyclops? It's that he's really the ordinary guy in the lot. It's a point I've argued about on several message boards over the year. But Peter Parker is often presented as the everyman. But he's not. Peter Parker is a genius, while Cyclops is not. Cyclops is in the X-Men. He's not handsome, like Angel is. He's not smart, like Hank is. He's, he's not cool, as Iceman is, if you forget the pun. And despite all that, he manages to... To, to, to be a good leader, to be a good hero, he tries to do the right thing. And over the years, you see him develop into this insecure guy with glasses, with which I suppose many young readers can identify. And he grows up to become this figure that everybody looks up to. And even his later development into a quasi-villain, it was fine with me as well. I, I regretted that this guy who had been the epitome of the superheroic Boy Scout grew into what was more of a negative figure, but still he was growing. He, he was pushed into circumstances where he had to become what he, he did not want to become. Because I, uh, I suppose that you've read the X-Men during the, uh, the Jim Lee run, mm -hmm. what was called the Golden Age. Uh, I, I really didn't like that, that era. Once Claremont left, uh, the mag lost interest to me. But you, uh, in those days, you had Cyclops who was opposing Cable's sort of uh, militant activism for the mutant cause. And Cable was saying, oh, they all hate us, we have to gear ourselves for war, it, uh, things are going to boil and it's going to, be, it's going to be terrible. And Cyclops said, no, 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 we must pursue Xavier's dream, we must encourage cooperation between mutants and humans. And 
10 years later, Cyclops is in Cable's shoes. And he's turned around, not because he wanted to, but because he was basically forced to. And that is character development. Not sure I, I'm not sure I, I'm happy it happened to Cyclops, but of all the heroes in, in the stable of Marvel Comics, he's the only one who knew any kind of development in the last 25 years. And then they went and killed him, which is a very stupid move. I'm sure he'll be back in 10 minutes. Yes, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Uh, so what character do you hate? Uh, I hate characters like Rage from the Avengers. Not, uh, and when I say that, it's not Rage in particular. It's that kind of character, which comes from no original idea. It's the kind of characters that publishers come up with because they want to, to address certain demographics, saying, oh, well, we don't have any left-handed stuttering guy with uh, one eye missing, so... We should really try to sell comics to those people, even if they're not very numerous. So come up with an Avenger with those characteristics. And I think it's just, it's pandering and it's, it's unoriginal and it's boring. So I don't like Rage. I don't like Rage either. Avengers has always been my favorite superhero title. And I had several issues with, with the introduction of Rage, where he's, he's basically accusing the team of being racist. It's pretty much yeah. what he's saying. Uh, that they don't have enough black members. And I found that to be, on a meta level, um, really frustrating because the only reason that the leader of the team wasn't Monica Rambeau at that time was because editorial in yeah. the form of Mark Grunewald forced them to write her out of the book. Very so well. then to have turn around and, and have you know two writers later have them, or three, have them create rage to address this supposed problem that they created themselves on purpose mm -hmm. uh, it seemed very cynical and I, did, I just didn't buy it. That was just a bad era for the book. Yeah, it, in was, my opinion. it was, especially since Monica is such a great character. Yeah, I agree. Because she, she herself, her personality is interesting. Her power is interesting. And the color of her skin has nothing to do with who she is as a character. She, she was not created to be the black girl on the team. She was created because she's an exciting new hero. And that's it. And that's the way it should be. On the matter of race, say, I remember the, an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine in which the whole thing focuses around uh, Captain Sisko's family. And for that entire episode, all the characters are black. And it's never mentioned. It's never mentioned because it doesn't matter. And I thought, this, this is the way... This is what it should be in the future, where we don't care what, what, colors, what color people are. And that's the way it should be. And that's one of the reasons I don't like characters like Rage, who are supposed to be created precisely because he's black. His role is to be black, and that's ridiculous. He should be an interesting hero. He shouldn't be there to represent a particular skin color or whatever. Yep, I agree with you. Like, Black Panther is a fantastically interesting character. It's brilliant! <laughs> Or the Falcon. Like, there's a lot of really great characters um, that are just great characters. And then when they try and it's like the the uh, the tails wagging the dog. They're trying to reverse engineer a character to serve a purpose, like you say, and mm -hmm. it ends up in a character that doesn't really serve any purpose. True. True. So, last question from the questionnaire: If you could create one dream series any title any characters any creative team whether they're living or dead it doesn't matter just sky's the limit what would you create what what book would you love to see oh my 
this is not going to be very original because as an old comic book fans, I tend to look backwards rather than forward. And I look at old series that went nowhere and I think, oh, such a missed opportunity there. And what I would like in a dream world would, would be to see those series come to fruition to get to their logical end. And the example that comes to mind right now is the Legion of Superheroes uh, in the, uh, the Keith Giffen, Beerbaum era, where you had a remarkable start as a science fiction series. It, it was not really about superheroics. It was a really sci-fi stories with high concepts. And they did very daring things like blowing up the moon and then they blew up the earth. That was that was going a little too far, but still, it was something that we hadn't seen before. And in that period, the Legion of Superheroes, which consisted of older heroes, they had been allowed to age a few years, had been joined by clones of themselves, who at first did not know they were clones. And the older and younger versions started interacting together, which shows that uh, nothing was invented at Marvel recently with the X-Men. And it was handled in a very... I'd say a very uh, sensitive way when you had characters like Jonah, uh, what's his name? What's his superhero name? That's embarrassing. I forgot what Jonah's name is. Well, anyway, at the time he had lost his, uh, his wife, uh, Phantom Girl, and he, he had the opportunity to interact with a clone of his wife back when she was in her, her late teens. And it was very awkward and very painful, but it was also very well written. And I would have loved to see how you interact with your younger self for an extended period of time. And we never got around to see that because then DC came up with another crossover which changed everything and rebooted the Legion. So there was a great opportunity there that was completely lost. Such examples are what I would like to see. And seeing Roy Thomas continue on Conan, that would have been great as well. Well, that's a perfect segue into what we're talking about today, which is, of course, Red Sonja. Yay. So, you know, in 1972, Conan was really hitting all strides. Roy Thomas was on the book and Barry Windsor Smith, or just Barry Smith, as he at was time, yeah. called at the time, was at the top of his game. And for issue 23, Roy wanted to have a female foil for Conan, but he knew it was going to be quite a while until he got to the point where Bailey got introduced because he was sort of going through the stories in chronological order and in real time. Yeah, that's Roy Thomas for you. He's always a stickler to continuity. Yeah, and that's going to come back to bite Red Sonja later on. Um, Indeed. So he wanted to come up with a character, a female character, who could sort of fill that story role in the time before he got to the introduction of Belit. Yeah, and, and the introduction of Valeria as well, because the, this idea of a female foil for Conan had been introduced by Robert E. Howard himself in the story Red Nails. But there's a, another she-pirate called Valeria, and the interaction between her and Conan was, very, was a lot of fun because they were arguing all the time. But Valeria is, gets around the... Gets it gets introduced in the series when Conan is, is something like thirty eight, and it was decades in the future when uh, relative to where Conan was in nineteen seventy two. So you couldn't use Valeria, and as you say, we couldn't use Bailey yet. And uh, the reason Roy Thomas came up with uh, Red Sonia as a redhead is because Bailey has got black hair and Valeria is blonde. So we thought, eh, let's let's complete the trio and get a redhead in there. But it, he must have really been happy then when he 
heard about a story that um, Robert E. Howard had written called uh, The Shadow of the Vulture, which had a character in it called Red Sonia of Rogatino. Yep. And this was a story that took place, I think, in the 15th century. Uh, 16th, I think. 16th century? Okay. Yeah, it's at the time of Solomon the Magnificent and the Siege of Vienna. So Roy got a hold of this and decided to adapt the story for Conan, and it appears in issue 23. Mm-hmm. And so we get our first look at Red Sonja issue 23, and and it, she's also in the next issue 24, which we'll talk about here as well. Uh-huh. But this is kind of like a prototype of what Red Sonja would eventually become. She, in her initial costume, she's got basically a chainmail shirt and some little shorts. Yep. And she's leading a team of mercenaries uh, defending the city that's under siege. Yeah, and it's still my favorite version of the character. I think she never she never was as good as in issues 23 and 24. I actually agree with you. I don't think she gets any better than she does in these first two issues, where she is a great foil for Conan. She's kind of almost more fun than he is. You know, he, but she is. He can get kind of dour even in these early issues. He's a bit of a stick in the mud for me. Yeah. And she kind of brings out this more fun, adventurous side to him. Uh-huh. She, you know, at the beginning of issue 24, there's a famous splash page where she's dancing on a table. Like, she's enjoying herself. True. And she has a really playful banter with him. So there's a couple things about this this, this first two-parter that I wanted to, to talk about. Right at the very end of issue 24, Conan, uh, when she's riding away, she, she, for the first time, you know, Conan is like, you know, hey, we should get together, whatever. And she says something along the lines of, you know, no man will ever touch me. It's the first hint we get of this um, idea that Roy is developing. You can almost see percolating in his head as you go through these stories in order about Red, who Red Sonny is and, and why she is the way she is. Yeah. I wonder, though, how this might have developed differently if issue 24 hadn't also been the last issue that Barry Smith drew. In terms of the development of Red Sonia, do you think it would have mattered? Or do you think, you know, Roy Thomas was pretty much set in what he was going to do with the characters. I don't think Roy was set at the time. And uh, even the, even in that story where we first see the Iron Bikini, which was published in Savage Sword number one, uh, Red Sonia is still not the one that we will come to know later on with the, 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 her, whole, her whole origin story and the, the, the curse of the goddess and, and that stuff. Up to that point, she's still, she's still very much Valeria-like. She's a woman who will not accept the rules of a patriarchal society, and she doesn't want to live the life that a woman is supposed to live in the Hyborian age. She wants this. She wants the same rights as guys have. She wants to have fun. She wants to know adventure, and she won't let any any man tell her what to do. Which is the way I interpreted the first time that she said that her lips would never touch that of a man unless he had beaten her. It it was not a it was not a melody it, it was not a, a curse it was not it was not an oath that she had taken it was a general attitude it means look if you guys want to have uh, to have something with me you'll have to prove yourselves I am no man's woman unless I decide to and that was thrown out with her origin story which is really which is really a, a sad thing what what did they say in issue twenty three they said. She's every man's pleasure and no man's love, I think, or some such. Because you're, you're supposed to enjoy her as a, as a partner, as a friend. She, it's true, she, she, she likes to party, she likes to have fun. But 
don't try to claim her as your property because then she'll get angry and oh boy, you'll suffer. Yes, we're going to get to her origin momentarily, but I do think sort of the the downslide for me, the character does start right away in her third appearance in Savage Sword of Conan number one, where we get this new costume by Esteban Moroto. Uh-huh. My understanding is that uh, he basically just came up with this costume on his own and sent it into yeah. Roy. Yes, he did. And Roy liked it. He, d- he did, but didn't publish it. So the, it was published in uh, Jim Starenko's magazine called Comic Scene. That's the first time we saw it. For those who somehow are not familiar with this costume, and I think probably anyone listening to this knows the costume we're talking about because it is one of the most famous costumes for a female character in all of comics. It's a chainmail bikini. It's a tiny yeah. little chainmail bikini. And sometimes she's got some like uh, shoulder blanking yeah. on the yeah. term. Um, shoulder pads. Yeah. Iron shoulder pads that yeah. hold it yeah. palettes or something, whatever they're called. Yeah. And... But that's it. Uh, she has a cape sometimes, too. Yeah. But it's just this ridiculous-looking little chainmail bikini, and I felt like right off the bat, compared to her original costume with a full shirt of chainmail, mm-hmm. they're they're undermining the character. Yeah, they do. And uh, the costume was actually ridiculed in one of the Conan pastiche novels written by Carl Edward Wagner. I mean, Wagner wrote only one, but it's one of the pastiches. It's called the, the Road of Kings. And in that, there's a costumed ball at the court of Cordova. And Conan is acting as a bodyguard, I think. And in the crowd where people are all disguised in monsters and witches and stuff, there's a woman disguised as what obviously people think a, a sold woman should look like. And she's wearing Red Sonia's outfit. She's wearing the iron bikini. And Wagner makes it clear that he thinks it's a ridiculous concept. Nobody would wear that to war. And I thought that was a nice touch. What's interesting, when she gets her own book a couple years later uh, in Marvel Feature, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, I got the impression that Roy and Bruce Jones and the other people writing the book also thought it was ridiculous because almost every single issue, there's some sort of comment, either by Sonya herself or more often by another character, mm-hmm. joking about how ridiculous her outfit is. Yeah. I feel like they were aware of how stupid it was, but they thought it looked hot, so they just went yeah, with it. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a it's a great comic book costume. You you recognize it instantly, and it's it's certainly become iconic for for Red Sonia. When you see Red Sonia, that's the image people see. They think of the Iron Bikini. And yeah, that's one of the reasons I dislike it so much because the character, as you say, had originally a lot of potential as a strong uh, female protagonist, and she yeah. fulfilled some of that. Yeah, for two issues. Yeah. <laughs> but but after that it's like it's hard to have a a strong, you know, female icon when everyone thinks of her in in as being in a completely impractical bikini. It's just pure cheesecake. Yeah. And it reduces her to a just, you know, it's just a sex symbol. It's just it's all yeah. about the sex. Yeah, that that's what I hate about the about the costume. And it's a little ironic for me because I feel like the the characterization in those first two stories in Conan 23 and 24 is great. But one of the other things that's great is the cover of Conan 24 is one of the all-time great covers. It's, yeah, it's, it's a thing of beauty. It's it was in Foom, the uh, Friends of Old Marvel official magazine. It was voted the best cover of the year by Marvel fans. And 
I wonder how much of the popularity, the initial popularity of the character, was up to the popularity of that cover and up to the the way that Barry Smith had designed the character. So it's it's kind of ironic to me that they immediately threw that out in favor of this cheesecake design when the, the original design had been so popular. Yeah, Roy himself said that he, he was not such a big fan of the first costume. He thought it was practical, that it looked nice, but that it was a bit bland. And uh, that's, that's why he pushed the uh, Esteban Marato redesign. Well, I'm a huge fan of Roy Thomas, but I think he made a mistake there. But it so do I. certainly wouldn't be his last mistake because that brings us to... Well, she did have another appearance in Conan 44. Yeah, it's, it's actually Savage Sword number one first, and then it sinks into uh, 43 and 44. But after that, we get her origin story in Call and the Barbarians number three. Yes. And for those who haven't had the intense displeasure of reading this story, I'll just <laughs> recap it really quickly. And, and, see, and that awful story was even done twice. It was done the first time in Colin the Barbarians number three, drawn by Howard Chicken. And it was redone entirely, drawn by uh, Dick Giordano, I think, and inked by Terry Austin. So as awful as that story was, it was produced independently twice. should have been produced zero times because I agree. <laughs> there's so many things wrong with it. Yeah. Um, again, for those who haven't read it, I'll just explain it real quick. We discovered that Red Sonia had been just a normal farm girl, and then these brigands come in and murder her entire family and viciously rape her and leave her to die, and she um, crawls away and pleads to the goddess, and I have no idea how to pronounce her name, Skathak? It's all right, because that's a retcon anyway. She wasn't called that in any of the Marvel series. Okay. She was the red goddess, and that was that. So she she pleads to the Red Goddess, and the Red Goddess appears and says, Yep, yeah, I'm going to give you the magical power to suddenly become an invincible swordswoman, but there's a caveat to this. You will lose your powers if you ever sleep with a man who hasn't first defeated you in combat. So Red Sunny is like, okay, and she gains these magical powers, suddenly knows is super strong and super fast and is incredibly skilled with the blade and she goes charging back out of the cave to get her vengeance and uh, in in the course of the story like this is actually in a flashback where she finds the guy years later who did this but by the time she finds him he's already been tortured into insanity by a completely random other group of people and uh, then she just goes on her way and talk about one of the worst ideas in the history of comic books where you take this strong female hero who was designed in her first appearances as we just discussed with this sort of powerful message of sort of equality and independence and, and self-reliance and she, she's the kind of person that we all want to grow up to be at that point yeah and then it turns out that she gets all of her powers, you know, all of her skill, none of it is self-made. It's no, all... it's a cheat. Exactly. It's a cheat. Yeah. And not only is it a cheat, she only gained these powers to begin with because she was raped. Yeah. Because apparently it's impossible to create a, a female character in comic books without having her being raped first. And that's an incredibly distressing reality. It, it's as if writers can can just bother to come up with any other any other origin for those characters and i think it's it's extremely insulting it, it's it's oh god 
words, words fail me. I mean, why does every female character have to be raped? Come on, guys! Well, I think that's exactly why, because it's guys. One of the big problems is in the 70s, there's no women in the room, as they say now. There are no women involved in the character or in the creation of these stories. Mm-hmm. And so we get this sort of weird thing where the the men trying to write these or create these female characters do stuff like having them raped all the time. And mm-hmm. I mean, all I can say is I'm glad it's not the 70s now. Uh, not yeah. that, it, you know, there's still problems, of course, but it, it's really glaring when you read these stories just how completely out of balance the comic industry in particular was at that time. We will see some female creators get involved with the book later, and ironically, I don't think that ended up doing the stories any service when they did. But just having women in the room when these decisions are being made who might be able to say something like, you know, maybe we shouldn't put her in a chainmail bikini maybe we shouldn't have her be raped as part of her origin story maybe we should have it so she actually developed these skills on her own and they weren't just granted to her magically by a goddess yes please but unfortunately there wasn't a voice in the room and or if there was roy ignored it because we end up with this and so just a few appearances after her incredible debut the character has been almost completely neutered uh, where we have a character now who is Every aspect of the character has been saddled with weird sexual baggage from the way she yeah. looks to her backstory. Yeah. And now she has this to her motivation oath. to her motivation because the, there's this oath that she has sworn to get her superpowers, so to speak. And that oath will become incredibly complicated as time goes by. At first, she was supposed not to take a lover unless said lover had beaten her uh, in a sword fight. And later on, it was interpreted as if she had to become the lover of whoever beat her. So you have this queue of guys who want to fight Red Sonia just just to bed her. And that, that that's even worse. I mean, it's extremely frustrating to see how quickly this great character with all this potential was stripped away, literally stripped away of her of her independence and power and of her agency by the male writers working on the series. It's just so ill-advised. Now, we are going to talk about this later on after we go through the first couple series. Roy eventually revisited this origin and yeah. put some new twists on it. And we'll discuss that later because when it's almost like he decided to try and fix it. And I think he yeah. might have actually made it worse with his, with his retcon later on. But we'll get to that uh, when we get to 1979. Mm-hmm. But in 1975, not too long after her origin story, Red Sonja got her own series. Um, She didn't actually get her own series. This is one of those weird Marvel tryout situations where they started a series, they restarted an older series called Marvel Feature, renumbered it with number one, and had it star Red Sonja. It only ran for seven issues. Every issue was all Red Sonia, so I'm not entirely sure why they didn't simply just call it Red Sonia to begin with, since they apparently had no intention of ever featuring anyone else in Marvel Feature. Uh-huh. But the first issue uh, was interesting. It had still being written by Roy Thomas, and it had uh, Dick Giordano doing the art. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a big fan of his art in general. I think he's, speaking of artists who are underrated, I think he, he gets uh, overlooked a little bit. That's um, true. That is true. But with issue number two, uh, something much more important happens 
with for the character and for the history of the character. And that is that Frank Thorne comes on board as the character's artist and quickly becomes the defining Red Sonja artist. When you think of Red Sonja and what she looks like and what the way she's depicted, Frank Thorne is the guy that you think of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, it's interesting. I was reading a um, when Dynamite eventually collected these issues, Roy Thomas wrote introductions to the collected versions, volumes. And he was talking about Frank Thorne's art and he said that Frank Thorne had a, a strange ability to make her look like a blow-up sex doll, but somehow still strong and powerful at the same time. And it's all the eyes. It's all the eyes. Yes. Well, Sonia with those spooky eyes with like there's no space between her eye and her eyebrows. It's like she's frowning all the time. I thought it was an interesting description because it almost um, perfectly encapsulates what Roy apparently wanted the character to be at this point, a blow-up <laughs> sex doll who somehow would also kick ass. But when I was reading... It's actually a very good description of the 1970s Sonia. Yeah. When I actually read through these issues, though, I was surprised. When you look at the covers, they're, they're excellent covers. Um, but the interior artwork by Thorne is not nearly as slick as his cover work. It's much uh, moodier and sketchier particularly yeah. in these first Marvel feature issues. And I was, this may sound crazy, but I don't think I'm crazy here. I was actually getting a very strong Joe Kubert vibe from some of these issues. Well, it's not crazy at all. I think you're perfectly right. It surprised me, I guess, because you, it doesn't come out on the covers no. uh, for some reason. But the oh. interior book, man, it it looks like um, almost like um, a cross between some of the, the graphic design elements that Barry Smith had been experimenting with at that time with Joe Kubert. Yeah. And I'd say yeah. that, I mean, there is some Kubert element in Barry Smith's work at that time as well, but it really stands out. Uh, and honestly, I enjoyed the interior artwork a lot more than I was expecting on this series because it had a, a real you know gritty feel that I was not expecting based on the covers. Yeah, it, it was the same for me. I, I'm more of a fan of artists who will have a very tight control of their lines. Like Barry Smith will do these thousands and thousands of little lines drawn with a pen. And uh, Neil Adams will put these great black and white spots. While Kubert goes with a brush and he's very loose with his style. And it, it's a much more organic feel. And Thorne is... is it goes in that vein. That's the way he draws. And as a result, the Red Sonia stories drawn by Frank Thorne are very moody. They're very exotic, in a sense. Uh, they're far more mythological looking than the equivalent stories in Conan at the time, where it was much more down to earth. And the fans at the time seemed to really dig it because the popularity of the character really took off, I think, when Frank Thorne came on board. And part of that, and this really started happening a little bit later, more towards 77 and 78, but Frank Thorne um, helped bring the character to the forefront of the emerging cosplay community in the 70s. Yeah. He... Now I know the show that he had with a few, uh, a few people dressing up as Red Sonia. Exactly. He had what they called the Sonia and the Wizard show. And mm -hmm. part of it was basically like a um like we have now where they have the cosplay competitions at conventions but it was just red sonia it was just people dressed as red sonia and then he would also do a skit there's like a 15 yeah. or 20 minute sketch that he would do and red sonia became like the top costume for female cosplayers at the time and i think a lot of that had to do with both frank thorne's artwork 
but also the fact that he was at these shows promoting Red Sonja. In fact, they actually had, at one point in the late 70s... A the Red Sonja convention. Exactly. Right, yeah. And as part of this, Thorne also had another bit of influence beyond just his art and beyond even uh, the burgeoning cosplay community, where several of the Red Sonja cosplayers he worked with went on to become comic book professionals, most notably, of course, Wendy Peeney, yeah. who was working on or developing ElfQuest at the same time. I wonder how much Frank Thorne helped her with that, because I know one of the other Red Sonja cosplayers at the time uh, was a, um, a woman by the name of Wendy Snow, and she was putting out not nearly as um, polished as ElfQuest, but she had a, a fantasy series called The Books of Zomzathia. And in that, which is not easy to find because it was like a self-published little black and white sort of um, indie book. Uh, but I happen to have a copy of the first issue. And in it, she thanks Frank Thorne for his contributions to the book. I got the impression that he was acting sort of as a mentor to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So I wonder how much he also had to do with with the development of ElfQuest through his um, association with Wendy with Beanie. Beanie. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't expect Wendy Beanie to have been that influenced by Frank Thorne. Well, perhaps, perhaps he did have a certain role as a mentor, but I always got the impression that the Peenies were very, very independent in their creativity. They were doing their own thing, and I, I don't see a lot of Thorne in Wendy's art. Or inner storytelling, for that matter. So one final note about the popularity of Red Sonja in sort of a broader pop culture sense, where Marvel was starting to feature her in their promotional ads and put out merchandise, and she was being hyped at the you know the Red Sonja con, and with these shows that Frank Thorne was putting on. In 1977, on television, on the Mike Douglas show, Wendy Peeney actually appeared in costume as Red Sonja on the TV show as part of a segment about comic books. Didn't know that. That's interesting. It is. I, I'm not sure the footage is available on YouTube, but it might actually be online. For our listeners, if you're interested in the Red Sonja cosplay experience, in Savage Sword of Conan number 29, Frank Thorne um, almost like narrates this uh, photo spread that goes over what are called the Hyborian Players, which is his group of... Um, this theater group that puts on these shows. It's got little bios of them as well as photos of the different women playing Red Sonja in their different costumes. So you can see exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, so anyway, we got a little bit of ahead of ourselves because uh, of the influence of Frank Thorne. He's actually bending time and space. He comes on in issue two. The book's popularity takes off. Bruce Jones at this point is a writer. But at the end of the Marvel feature run... Roy Thomas comes back on as writer to do a crossover, a four, depending on how you look at it, a three or four part crossover, with that takes place in Conan number sixty six to sixty eight, as well as Marvel feature number seven, and shows the meeting between Red Sonja and Belit and King Cull is there as well. That's right, King Cull is there, and that's in, you know I, actually that reminded me of one thing I wanted to mention about this crossover. I found it a little bit odd in Marvel feature number seven. You know, there's the thing, at last it had to happen, Conan versus Red Sonja. Fight to the death. Fight to the death, which takes like two pages and nobody dies. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I did find it odd that Red Sonja does not appear on any of the covers of Conan during this crossover. She's mentioned yeah, in a text box, but that seemed a little odd to me. Uh, you know, the character is popular. 
with Conan fans, the whole reason she got her own series, and she, as we've just been discussing, is growing in popularity uh, in a general like pop culture sense at this point, which is um, mid to late 1976. I just found it a very, very strange decision to leave her off the covers. I would think that would be a selling point for those books. That's true. I, I agree. At, at least uh, in a corner of the cover, starring Red Sonia, don't miss it. Because the covers in those uh, in those three issues they fe- they feature the main monster that Conan fights, so they're they're topical at least. And the sixty eight of course has Conan versus King Cole, which is a big event. But yeah, just mentioning that that Sonia was there would have been a great idea. I don't know why they didn't do it. Now, right after this crossover, Red Sonia suddenly gets her own title, and in the letter column for Red Sonia number one, which is cover dated nineteen seventy seven, but actually came out right at the end of nineteen seventy six. Roy says that the decision to turn it into its own title came as a surprise because he had apparently suggested this a long time ago to Stan Lee and nobody told him it was actually going to happen until the last minute. So when they were doing this book, they thought this issue was going to be Marvel feature number eight. I do kind of wish they had had more notice that she was going to get her own title because the story in the first issue is kind of dopey. Uh, it's the one with the unicorn. Yeah. Well, but it, it, I, I agree that it's a little dopey, but... The main difference I see in the, the Red Sonia adventures from that era and the Conan ones is that the Sonia ones were usually more fanciful. Uh, you'd have a story with a, a three-legged goat, for example, and that's pretty standard fare for Sonia. You wouldn't have seen that in Conan. Same thing with the unicorn. I don't much care for unicorns usually, and I really wouldn't like to see a unicorn in a, in a Conan story. But with Sonia, it kind of fit, particularly when... Frank Thorne is involved, and he's always drawing these dreamlike uh, uh, cityscapes and uh, dreamlike characters and people in very colorful clothes. So a unicorn was kind of fitting, I thought. See, I didn't like it, and I um, this actually... I'm glad you brought this up. The, the Red Sonja series here, it lasted for 15 issues. It ran until the end of 1979, and... The number one difference, as you say, between the Red Sonja series and the Conan series is that Conan is being written entirely by Roy Thomas, and he's a stickler for uh, the Robert E. Howard continuity. So it's really grounded in this sort of pseudo-history that Howard had been creating. And bless him for it, because that... That's what I love most about the Conan Conan series. It's that pseudo-historical feel. And that is what I think is sorely lacking in this Red Sonja series. It gets very fanciful, and it becomes, to me, very sort of uh, run-of-the-mill fantasy nonsense. And part of of it, I think the problem, and I don't want to blame this too much on her, but during this, uh, partway through this series, Roy stops being the sole writer, and, yeah, and Clara Noto comes in. Yes, Clara Noto comes in to do the plotting, and there's all these magical elements, and I felt like it really uh, unmoored the character. It was no longer set in a realistic yeah. fantasy world. It was just whatever weird ideas that Noto had, including one story that was adapted from a dream that she had. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the, the series really... Never, I, I don't want to say it went off the rails because I'm not sure it was ever on the rails. Right from the start with the with the unicorn story, I felt that kind of set the tone for this book as sort of just another fantasy book. And yeah, yeah. I wish that uh, Roy had put the kind of effort into the series that he was putting into Conan the Barbarian at the time. Yeah, and I wonder how much of it is because Conan he was 
adapting Howard's stories with Red Sonia. They were just making stuff up. Uh, I'm, I'm again, I'm a big fan of Roy, and I certainly don't want to uh, imply that he's not an excellent writer because he is. But he also, as you can see in all of his titles that he's ever done, he is very influenced by uh, literature and. Yeah. So, I mean, he's drawing from specific sources when he does a lot of his best work. True. And True. in Red Sonia, he's not drawing from any sources because he's really working off of Noto's plots. And um, honestly, I did not think this series was very good. The Frank Thornart is the draw for the series. Mm-hmm. But the stories range from mediocre to downright bad, in my opinion. There weren't, weren't any of them in this entire run of 15 issues that I particularly enjoyed. Mm, yeah, same here. I, I did like Marvel feature number seven because it ties with uh, a tighter story. But overall, yeah, it's, it's a very superficial fantasy series. And that's the, uh, that's the vulnerability of any fantasy series is that it's hard to connect to it. And some writers seem to believe that the nice thing about fantasy is that you can do whatever you like. But that's not true. If you can do whatever you like, why should readers care? And that's a problem that struck the Conan, Conan the Barbarian comic when Roy Thomas left the first time. Because Roy Thomas, even when he's not adapting the stories of Robert Howard or introducing stories by other people into Howard's canon, he was writing Conan as if it was a, a real history the history of a character who lived in this long-ago era, and we pretty much know what happens to Conan. He, he went through this phase of his career, was a thief, he was a pirate, he was a soldier, then he was a king. And as long as Roy sticks to that pseudo-historical context, things are great, and you, you're, you're interested in it. You want to know, how will Conan get from there to there, and how will, how will things develop so that he will eventually end up on the cross, because he did as well, being a tough guy and all. And you have an interest in his, his ongoing story. But with Sonia, it's a girl in an iron bikini. And she goes around month after month have, having adventures. And nothing, none of it ever matters. There are no consequences. We have no idea where she's going. And uh, we'll probably talk about it later. But we, we find out in one of the Marvel series that even in her 60s, she hasn't changed at all. She's still someone who has adventures on a monthly basis. And... There are no consequences to our stories. Why should we care about that? So all that's left is enjoying the eye candy of Frank Thorne, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, exactly. This series, like, <clears throat> issue four of um, the Red Sonny series itself is where I really felt like it was going off the rails because this is a story where she encounters basically a race of aliens that crash-landed in a spaceship <laughs> and are yeah. now living in a city at the bottom of a lake. Ouch. And... I was reading that issue going, okay, everything I had hoped was going to be great about this character in the series has just turned to ashes in my mouth. Mm. It's like this, this is, I still have 11 more issues to read of this series and I have a sudden certainty that they're all going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> and they pretty much did. So yeah. um, Frank Thorne left the book after issue 11. Yeah, and John Zimma came in with uninspired art. Yep. And then uh, Frank Brunner covers were nice, though. Yes, the Frank Brunner covers were excellent. The covers throughout the run between Frank Thorne and Frank Brunner were terrific. Yeah. The series abruptly ended with issue 15. It ended just as abruptly as it started, and it apparently came as just a big a surprise to Roy because, in one of those introductions to the Dynamite Collected Edition, he says that 
Marvel didn't actually tell him the series was ending. He heard ah. about it from another creator who he happened to be talking to about an unrelated subject. And it really ticked Roy off. And in this um, introduction, he says that the their failure to notify him that Red Sun is being canceled was one of the big factors in him quitting Marvel and going to DC. Yeah, Roy, Roy liked to have more control over his series. He had this status of writer-editor that he enjoyed. And Jim Shooter hated the concept of writer-editors. So I can't imagine how, how Roy would have been annoyed by having a book pulled from under his feet without without him even being noticed, notified. I mean, such things are not done. Yeah, Jim Shooter doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would feel comfortable with another successful former editor-in-chief working under him. Yeah. Uh, I think that that relationship was doomed to end pretty quickly. Um, it's interesting that Red Sonia was one of the straws that broke the camel's back. That wouldn't be the last time that Roy Thomas worked with Red Sonja, though. In part two, Roquefort Raider and I discuss Roy's attempts to retcon his own terrible origin story. We'll also discuss Murata the She-Wolf, Marvel's second Red Sonja series and third Red Sonja series, the failed Red Sonja movie starring Brigitte Nielsen, Red Sonja's final appearances at Marvel, and what's happened to the character since then. I hope you enjoyed part one of our discussion and come back next time for part two. And as always, visit us online at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation.